This week on the Vergecast, we talk about the new Mac Pro. We talk about our gadgets of the decade and what Twitter is doing by thinking about decentralizing itself. That's Vergecast coming up now. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking. So why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the holiday season. Ooh. Can we get some like jingle bell sounds? No. Andrew said no. <laughs> he didn't he didn't say yes. Hi, I'm Neil. I'm your friend. I'm back. It's been several weeks since I've been on the show, I think. Welcome 100 back. weeks? How many weeks? 100 weeks. Yeah. Dieter is here. Hi Dieter. I have been here the whole time. Dieter works hard. <laughs> Dieter, diligent Dieter is here. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. It's like a garbage pail kid name. <laughs> Paul Miller is here. Hello. I don't have a nickname for you, Paul. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's pretty, pretty Paul. I'll come up with your children's book quality nickname soon. <laughs> it is both a quiet week in news. We're like cruising into the end of the year, but a, a lot of things happened this week. Yeah. And we published our list of 100 gadgets of the decade, which just in full transparency was designed to make people argue about 100 gadgets, <laughs> which is wh- what else are we here for? So we're going to talk about that. We got to talk about the Mac Pro. I want to start uh, by congratulating our friend Kara Swisher. Recode Decode was awarded Podcast of the Year by Adweek, which is incredible. Uh, so go check out Recode Decode. I also want to say Zoe Schiffer's amazing away story continues to have twists and turns. You've probably seen it, Dieter. I think you mentioned it on the show last week. Yep. Steph Corey, the CEO of Away, was removed. There's a new CEO, the dude from Lululemon. There's more twists and turns coming. We're going to have Zoe on the interview show on Tuesday. So we're not going to talk about it now. I just want to congratulate her for that story. Stay tuned. On Tuesday, she'll be back with more. There's more to come. It's going to be fun. She, it was a really fun interview. So if you haven't read it yet, go read Zoe's Away story. It is a phenomenon. And we'll talk to her about it on Tuesday. Okay. Apple Incorporated, small purveyor of computers. Apropos of nothing, unrelated to anything we're about to talk about, I need a raise. (laughs) Does somebody want a new computer? (laughs) I need a raise that is approximately as much as a Tesla Model 3. Yeah. (laughs) So Apple, just a quick history lesson. Okay. These two guys named Steve were in a garage, and they're like, we should make a computer, and it would go on your desk. Yeah. And one of the Steves thought it should be, like, beautiful. And the other Steve was like, what if it had ports? <laughs> this is true. What if it had card slots and ports? <laughs> this is true. This is a genesis of Apple. Yeah. And they had fights and fights, and they one time won one, and then one Steve got fired, and the other Steve is now like their mascot, and he says things on Twitter, and then Apple is like, well, just don't listen to him. Anyway, that's the story of the Steves. Now there are AirPods. I don't know. There's uh, th- some stuff happened. Now there's AirPods. Inside of Apple, the debate over whether things should be totally beautiful and have no ports 
or be modular and powerful for people who actually want to use them. It's in the DNA of the company. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> from the beginning. From the, like the first day. They're like arguing about card slots. Yeah. The wrong people won for a long time. Very long time. Like too long. So Apple's big strategy was that they would just make slow Macintoshes with bad keyboards and everyone would use an iPad and that would be the future. And then you'd be in their walled garden and it would be fine. The reality is people have to do work on their computers. Can we back up? How firmly do you, I mean, I know it's a joke conspiracy theory, but like there's some percentage of you that actually believes that they made the Mac laptops bad to force people to use iPads. And I just want to know what percent knows that it's a joke, but believes it anyway. The percentage went up way higher when they put out the MacBook Air everybody wanted. Yeah. When they when they tried to kill the MacBook Air by putting out the 13-inch MacBook Pro, and they're like, but we'll still sell this crappy Air. And then they were surprised that people continued to buy the MacBook Air, despite yeah. it being the crappiest laptop that they offered. Not that it was a crappy laptop, just in their lineup, the worst one, but people liked the balance of things that it was. And that surprised them. That, I would say, my, my belief that they wanted people to buy iPads instead of entry-level Mac laptops, and it didn't break their way, that went higher. That's what, I, that's what I would say to you. Okay. But they learned. They have learned. They figured it out, we think. Yep. So they put out uh, with a 16-inch MacBook Pro with a functional keyboard. Mm-hmm. Remember, a functional touch bar, but functional keyboard. And then this Mac Pro with like all the slots and RAM doohickeys that you could want. Yeah, and a USB-A port on the inside. <laughs> yeah. And now everybody's happy. The end. <laughs> That's very chest, everybody. So the, the news, if you haven't heard, is, um, you know, it was already announced. We already got to look at it. People have been talking about it. We knew it was coming for years. Uh, but now it's on sale. You can go buy one. And that meant a few things. Number one, it meant that uh, some... Influencers and uh, other sort of pros that uh, Apple really likes have had them for a while and have talked about some of their impressions. Profluencers. Profluencers. It also means that anyone is free to go and spec out their uh, dream Mac Pro. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it costs a lot of money, as you might expect, and there have been many a joke made about the money that it costs. So the the spec goes from $6,000 to, like, $52,000 and change. Plus monitors. Plus Plus monitors. (laughs) Plus wheels. Plus wheels. Oh, I guess the w- wheels are included at fifty two thousand. At fifty two K we throw in the wheels. <laughs> we'll do we'll do the clear coat protector, the underbody treatment, the whole thing. I want to go back to this profluencer thing because it's not that it doesn't it make it makes perfect sense that this is how Apple would roll it out. But it, it's also worth noting that as of this Vergecast, I cannot find a single legitimate benchmark of this computer. Apple did not give people who professionally care about the speed of computers a chance to look at this before it, it was officially out. Let me sand the rough edge off of that a little bit. Because I, th- I think the YouTubers care professionally about the speed of their computers. They did not give reviewers this computer, like professional media reviewers this computer. We didn't get one. Uh, Joanna didn't get one. Matt Panzerino didn't get one. Tom's Hardware didn't get one. Ars Technica didn't get one. Like, Anontech didn't get one. Like, the, the people hmm. who do it that way, our way, the traditional sort of media reviewer way, did not get these computers. Mm. YouTubers got these computers, and I just, for the record, I think everybody knows this, I really like Marquez. We've like done a lot of stuff with him. I really like John Morrison, I really like iJustine. They're in our ecosystem, we see them at events, we like them, their videos are fun to watch, go watch them. And actually, can I even add to that? The videos that they made 
uh, with the Mac Pro are very good. There are just a, there's a, there's the beginnings of some benchmarks, but they did the responsible thing and didn't act like they knew more than they knew when the embargo time came up for them to be able to post their videos. Yeah. They, they, they talked about what they were able to truthfully say about what they knew about this computer, which involved a lot of like, here's how it looks, here's how I feel about this, I was able to do these very small speed tests in the time that I had in order to do the thing. So in that sense, that's great. Like the, the, the videos are very good. You should absolutely go watch them. I'm happy they're successful. I'm happy they're, they compete with us in some dimensions and they don't in some other dimensions. Are they reviewers like we are reviewers? Like I think they would be the first to say that they do not do the things that we do. That's fine. We all exist in an ecosystem together. The thing we would have done is test a bunch of software that Apple hadn't already shown us worked really well. Right. right, and that's the thing that's missing. That's the thing you're talking about, Paul. There's like benchmarks out there. I think a lot of people are very interested to see how Adobe Premiere operates on this computer, and we don't know the answer yet. A lot of people uh, are not going to buy one until Avid certifies it, right? Mm-hmm. Avid's that like, could be a while. <laughs> it could be a long time, but that's a major piece of software for pros. And uh, maybe this isn't a fair comparison, but the way I kind of see it, there, there's this thing that happens with video games, where sometimes the video game's just so good that they don't give it to reviewers. And sometimes there's a a video game that's so bad that they definitely don't give it to reviewers because they'll get the day one sales before the really bad news hits. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's like some super bad news waiting with the Mac Pro. But what I think the news that is waiting that will probably happen in a week is like, hey, we built this Hackintosh with off the shelf parts and it costs a quarter of the Mac Pro and it beats it on 95% of the benchmarks. I, and I, I don't know that for certain, but I, I'm guessing Apple doesn't want that to be the very first headline for Mac Pro. And so I'm, it makes total sense that that is not currently the the very first headline. But for me, that's the most important thing about this computer is that a- Apple did manage to make a very powerful computer, but they didn't make the most powerful computer in the world. And they made a computer that is way more expensive than it necessarily needs to be. And it defines pro as someone with $6,000, where I would define pro as someone with $1,000. And that I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mindset that really frustrates me about Apple. And I, I just feel like this style of rollout, again, it's such a minor issue, but it, it speaks loudly to me in, the, in, in those tones. So here's what uh, I think is going on. I, don't, I can't speak for Apple, uh, but here's what I think is going on in their head. I think they know that there are a bunch of people that would not understand the right context in which to test this machine, right? They're like, oh, they'd run a benchmark, not know what it means, publish it, they get the bad headlines. They believe that this is a different kind of pro machine than the other pro machines. Like pro means two different things to Apple now, right? And this pro is like full on, I work at a movie studio or I, uh, you know, I work at a big music label kind of pro. Um, and that's different than, you know, I, I just want a nice computer, so I'm going to buy the MacBook Pro because it says pro and that makes me feel good, right? Right. Um, And so I think that they genuinely wanted to just make sure that people would who understood the context of what kind of pro machine this is were in the first wave of people to, like, say anything publicly about it outside the company. Do I fully agree with that decision? I mean, you can guess what my answer is. It's there are there are people that you could trust to, like, get the right con- get the context right. So, right. So, look, Joanna is one of our founders. She's one of my closest friends. I was like, did you get a Mac Pro? And she's like, what would I even do with that? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. Like, maybe the, the average Wall Street Journal 
The average Wall Street Journal reader is like using his iPad in first class, right? <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I, like he's fine. But the point of the machine is like Apple stepping confidently back into the context of we do make some of the fastest computers in the world. The content that you want to watch on uh, the movie screen or play it on Apple Music, like those pros are using our machines to the best possible work that can exist. The apps are coded on it. The video games are made on it. Like, that's the promise they're trying to make with the computer. That's a promise they failed with the previous Mac Pro to keep. It's a promise that their hardware, I mean, the last Mac Pro is 2013. So, like, for for seven years, they've been out of that game, right? And yeah. as the MacBook Pro, the, we've how many times have we talked about the processor refresh cycle and Intel and Bob, like, they've just been out of the game. They've been slow. And this is their big, we're back. Donald Trump's in Texas at the factory, which he thinks is new and fine. We're just going to let that slide. But, like, it's a moment. And so they're, they're capturing the moment. And I think the, the, the difference here is they rolled out what I would call, like, influencer marketing, right, not reviews. And I, I, that doesn't mean I don't think that Marquez will eventually publish a review. I think he absolutely will. But this first wave was a bunch of unboxing videos and, like, look at how fast it runs Apple software. But pros use a lot of not Apple software and a lot of software that is slow to turn the corner to new kinds of hardware and new ways of working. With the last Mac Pro, the software never actually turned the corner. It never actually got there and made the most use of that machine. We gave the last, the 2013 MacBook Pro, we were looking at that review, we gave it like an 8. Yeah. And we were like, it'll do great when everyone figures out these graphics cards. And like we were as wrong as anybody. So I think there's like a real danger here. The other thing, I think, is that which one do you review? That is actually really hard because there's so many different ways to configure this, right? You can configure it for audio or video or photo or like, and they all yeah. are actually wildly different machines. Yeah. And so we're going to, we're going to get one by hook or by crook. We're going to get one. <laughs> we're, we're leading towards crook right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know how to get one by crook. That seems like the wrong choice. If you know how to get one by hook, please let me know because that would be hilarious. <laughs> but we're going to get one. We're going to review it. And one of the questions we've been having is like, which one? How do we configure it? What do we configure it for? Um, I think we've probably talked about this on our show. Like, our video team uses uh, Creative Cloud. That's that's where we live. So, like, do we spec the $2,000 Afterburner card that will never be used just so we can test? Like, yeah. I think that is actually another huge problem for a review cycle on this machine. It is very hard to tell you where price performance lands if you just send people the, the $52,000 one and everyone's like, it's very fast. Like, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. Right. And that's becoming a very interesting thing of, uh, kind of across all computers right now. There are video cards that are good for different workloads. There are uh, CPUs that are di are good for vastly different. I mean, storage, you just want fast storage, but, you know, there's always that that, that trade-off between speed and size. You know, there's there are a lot of trade-offs with, with computers. And so, yeah. And within the Mac Pro, yeah, I could definitely see a whole bunch of different specs for very different use cases. Here's my question. Of the, like, the true pros that we are, like, talking about here, how many of them, what percentage, are just looking at the base $6,000 spec and being like, yep, that's what I need? That fits my needs exactly. I don't need to, to upgrade. And maybe I'll upgrade down the line. But, like, what percentage of people aren't specking this thing up from the jump to something over $10,000? I have to believe that's the largest percentage because all of those people want a $2,000 Mac Pro and they can't. And so now they have to, what is it called? Refinance their home. So, so they yeah. have a Mac Pro. So I asked the person in charge of technology at Vox Media Studios 
to spec one out. Like he would give to one of our company's Netflix productions or PBS production. There's a Hulu deal floating around Vox Media for Eater. TV shows are made in this building, is what I'm telling you. We have a post-production uh, studio downstairs. So I asked Marilo Silva, who runs that operation, hey, spec out a Mac Pro. What'd you get? He came back at at eleven thousand eight hundred dollars, yeah. which is not the most. So that's a three point two gigahertz sixteen core Xeon W, ninety six gigs of RAM, the single Radeon Pro Vega two with thirty two gigs of memory, a terabyte SSD, and obviously the Magic Mouse two. I mean, how could you not? And he's like, we don't do anything that would use more cores than that. He's like, that's that's what I buy. Um, I asked Grayson, our motion graphics person, and he like. Basically picked the same computer. He's like, I want cooler graphics cards. So he spent out two <laughs> graphics cards. Um, and, he, uh, and, he, and he added the Afterburner card because he's curious about it. And that yeah. got him to 17K, I think. So okay. at least in the video world where we live, and this is like we make YouTube videos and we, sometimes we publish them in 4K. So there's that side. And then the TV production that happens at our company, you're looking at 12 to 17, I would say. Yeah. Above that, I think you, you have more specialized workflows, you're moving more data, you're doing more stuff. But at least in, in our zone, it seems like that's the number. I think yeah. a lot of people are buying those $6,000 ones just to chain the processors together. Mm, okay. they, don't, they don't really need the storage and whatever, but they just need lots of cores and a, and a rack, and that's what they're going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a vibe of outrage coming from you, Paul, because you brought it up a handful of times. I personally am not mad that Apple makes a computer that, in order to do what it's designed to do, costs somewhere between twelve dollars and $17,000. The question is, should you be mad about the fact that they don't make that $2,000 computer? That's what I'm mad about. There, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. I do think it's probably overpriced for for what you get. And like you, like the, you just mentioned, Eli, like... <laughs> People would like to be able to put Xeon processors in server racks to do Mac workloads, but they can't because Apple doesn't make that for them. But yeah, I'm not, it's not like this is horrible, but when Apple sat down two years ago and admitted that it had done a bad job for getting to make professional desktop computers, I assumed that they knew uh, (laughs) that there is a large, I don't know. I, maybe I'm the crazy one, but I feel like there's a large <laughs> segment of people who get desktops that are around a thousand to two thousand dollars that are super effective and do really great work with them. And Apple doesn't believe that that should exist for some reason. Well, right. they make the iMac, right? They like make the that iMac computer. fills that that hole for them badly, poorly. Okay, <laughs> in my opinion, <laughs> Mac yeah. Mini with the Xeon. That's what you're looking for. I, no, I mean, the I, Mac Mini is no slouch right anymore, right? Yeah. They, they fixed that thing up a bit. And I think if you, all you need to do is put Xeons in a rack, like, first of all, why, aren't you, why are you running all of Mac OS Catalina with, like, Siri support and sidecar? Like, that makes no sense. Because Apple makes it that way. Apple restricts the places, for instance, Xcode. If you want to build Apple software, you know, you need to use Xcode. But if you are building Apple software at the scale that requires you to put a bunch of servers in a rack to compile, mm. A, you're, you're hopefully you're putting that on your corporate business card because you're not like <laughs> a single lone ranger in the basement. So you're amortizing it over the cost of your business. You're doing all kinds of accounting stuff. And B, like you're probably at the scale where the difference between $2,000 and $6,000 is not enormous to you, especially if, the pro- if it's as performant as Apple says it is. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's almost, I don't know how to say reverse everything you said. Like, like right now I contribute to an open source uh, software project and it does builds across a whole bunch of platforms to, to test it all out. 
It, so it's it's a very common use case for a lot of a lot of software, and it's happening on. Um, I mean, GitHub is doing it now, which is Microsoft. Microsoft is doing <laughs> like building thousands of software projects repeatedly every single day, and so it it, it limit it caps the amount of of services they can offer people in a sense by gating Macintoshes be, behind such a high price point. Yeah. I mean, this whole debate aside, because I think we're going to have this debate for another five years because we're not going to get the $2,000 Mac for, uh, out of them desktop. Have you thought about a $2,000 iPad? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the fact that the wheels cost 400 bucks and the display, if you get the nano coating on the display, you are not allowed to use anything other than the very special microfiber cloth that they provide because it might damage the the nano finish on the, the, the XDR display is just like... Apple knows, right? Like, the, they know. take the worst stereotypes that we have of Apple charging too much for stuff, mm-hmm. and they're and instead of like trying to like talk us out of it or whatever, they're like, nope, this stand costs a thousand dollars. Don't touch the screen with a with a piece of paper or Kleenex. Don't uh, don't you know? Don't don't buy a skateboard. Buy four hundred dollar wheels, right? Like, they know. I have thoroughly enjoyed the cottage industry of people who are like, well, if you are a professional color grader, it doesn't matter because Pixar will just pay the money. And, like, A, I'm 100% certain that's true. It's probably true. But, like, it doesn't change the fact that most people react to a $1,000 monitor stand the same way. Like, no matter who they are or where they're situated in in life. Like, you could roll up to Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, and be like, this monitor stand costs $1,000. And he'd be like, that's a lot of money. Like, that's just (laughs) the first thing he would say. Because it's just such an enormous amount of money. Or if you'd be like... I don't know. No, I got it. From now on, instead of asking presidential candidates what the cost of a gallon of milk is, <laughs> we should ask them how much a monitor stand yeah. should cost. All right, exactly. Uh, Pete, uh, are you aware of the Pro Display XDR? Because <laughs> uh, I have a question about the nano coating for you, sir. Do you support single cloth cleaning only? Uh, that's great. We're going to get Pete on the Vergecast, and we're only going to ask you about Mac hardware specs and uh, maintenance. It's going to be great. I'm excited to like, get the display in our hands. I'm excited to get the comp- – like I said, we're going to get the stuff. We're going to review it. My idea for reviewing it, like I said, we do have all these folks in our building who do things and make things, is to, to let them at it a little bit and see what that's like. I think we can be a little bit more expansive with this review. We got to get one. It's the holidays. I suspect we will not have a review of this thing until sometime next year, but I'm very excited about it. And, Paul, just to counter what you're saying, I think it is very exciting for Apple to be in this market, to want to win in this market, to have a super high-profile product that people have been waiting for a long time that I I think that they know it can't fail. The worst thing that could happen to Apple at this moment is the Mac Pro doing badly, right? Not the worst. The worst thing is like the tariffs, that there's no trade deal and the tariffs go up and the iPhones cost under. That's the worst thing that can happen to them. But the worst thing that can happen with their rep, with developers, with designers, with the video people, with all the people they're trying to court and keep on their team is that this product costs too much for what it can deliver or it doesn't work or it's a ridiculous cooling fan that was modeled after car tires or whatever they said to popular mechanic is like, it's actually really loud and it like causes dogs to rush into your home. Like, those would all be <laughs> catastrophic, right? I don't think it's going to be that. And I actually, the more I think about the top end price, and, and I hear like, yes, you can build your own your own thing. That top end price is reasonable against the top end prices of other vendors who compete in the same space, 
right? It's not reasonable against you yourself building a thing, but it's reasonable against you're going to go to HP and they're going to spec you out a, a Xeon server and they're going to provide support and experience to you over the lifetime of that product. Like that's what Apple will probably do for you if you spend $52,000 on a computer. They do have their pro workflow team. They do have all this experience next to it. You can trust them. The thing is probably well engineered. The power supply probably is matched properly to the video cards. Like that little thing that you're buying extra probably costs more than the home built one. The question is, is it better materially than the other commercial ones? I don't know the answer to that question. But I think it's great that Apple's in the space. I think it <clears throat> how many times have we talked about this? Like it's wild that the App Store is the moat for iOS and the iPhone and the iPad. And it's developers who are like, where's the computer to make the stuff on that I need? And they haven't provided that solution. Now they have. Are those people all still just going to buy MacBook Pros or else? Pros <laughs> thing costs so much money. But I, I'm happy that they're in the zone. I'm happy that they made this object. I'm very curious to get our hands on one. I also really want that display. Like, the, I'm a display the, nerd and they made the craziest display. Like, yeah, give it to me. The joke on the Swift programming language subreddit was something like, <laughs> I maxed out all the specs. Will this be enough to run Xcode? And someone said, yes, but you'll need to double the RAM if you want to run Chrome as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, can we talk about the Logitech $200 webcam for the display? It's so ugly. So the display costs $5,000. <laughs> the stand costs $1,000. If you want a webcam, you got to... A little magnet and $200 webcam on top, which yeah. I love. I actually love the idea that this monitor doesn't have a webcam built into it. Uh, but I love more that Logitech, dear sweet Logitech, saw a market opportunity to put a $200 magnetic webcam on top of this thing. Remember the, what was it called? The iCam? Was it called the iCam? Oh, you're talking about iSight. iSight. That thing was sick. That thing was badass. It was badass because webcams at that time, to run them for a long time, they generated a lot of heat. So it needed mm -hmm. to be an aluminum tube with fins on the inside and holes on the outside. Yeah. Incredible. It's the cheese grater of camera. It still looks beautiful. Yeah. No, Apple's stuff from that period of time, the Steve Jobs plus Johnny Ive era, is the most beautiful stuff they've ever made. This thing is but homage to that time. I agree with that. Yeah. That that moment when the well, consumer stuff was all candy-colored plastic and the pro stuff was all stainless steel and they hadn't yet just sort of made everything the same, easily the most beautiful stuff. I think Walt just tweeted a picture of like his first iBook or whatever, like the blue one, the clamshell blue iBook. That thing was great. <laughs> like, it was so ridiculous and so underpowered, and it had an eight by six screen, and like, it was still great. There's some other Apple stuff to talk through. There's a rumor that they're going to put out a phone without any ports in 2021. I just, I get, I can't, I don't. <laughs> Come on. Here's what I got for you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to play the, I'm going to play this game with you. The iPhone does not need a data port. Agreed. Done, Your Honor. We will be submitting our documents in full. <laughs> when is the last time? I mean, Neil, you're a maniac, so don't answer this because you never do this. But you're in your car. Just pull over. Pick up your phone. Look at it. And think to yourself, when was the last time I was doing this thing I'm doing right now, holding my phone, and I had it plugged in because I wanted to charge it whilst I used it? Oh, I do that all the time. Yeah. Explain to me how that works in a portless world. You, uh, you, you clip a ba wireless battery on the back. Well, you think that uh, Mophie can't figure that out? And so you're gonna you're gonna carry around a, a giant wireless charging pad with you? I mean, I carry one around for my watch. I mean, that's just bonkers. A See, perfectly sized circular coil that goes on the back of the iPhone. Uh huh. 
instead of a US or lightning connector. Like, honestly, what is the difference? Okay. Well, so why not just use pogo pins then? No, because then, well, I know, they got rid of Johnny Ive. So whoever's left will be very unhappy. Because uh, you don't need them, because you don't need data transfer. Yeah, but the the you could do data transfer wireless USB wirelessly at that, at that close of connection. By the way, um, but the charging speed is not great, and as soon as there's not a physical connection, you lose charging speed. Just picture this: Phil Schiller's on a stage, and he's like, "Look, every night I walk out of this circle and I walk towards my car, and I think to myself, it's a little chilly outside. That's why our new charger gets dangerously hot while it wirelessly <laughs> charges your phone." No one in the industry has ever thought of this before. Other folks, they're playing it safe. Apple, risks. Look, they can probably, look, they didn't do it right with air power. They can probably run it a little hotter than the standard, right? That's the thing they want to do with cheese, improve it. Right. So I bet if they can get an efficient, I'm making this argument because I think this idea is horrible, uh, but I need to practice. Yeah, they're already behind uh, what Android phones allow on wireless charging. Like you can you can turn up the wattage on on wireless charging for Android phones much higher than Apple currently allows. Not much higher, but like higher. Yeah, it's like seven point five versus ten. Yeah. How fast does a ten watt charger charge? Uh, a hell of a lot slower than the like forty five watt charger I can charge my iPhone with right now with a cable. Like, come on. I'm just saying, it, it, if you accept, and I sadly accept that there's no need for data transfer to and from an iPhone anymore. Mm, I actually don't fully accept that because especially if you want to use your iPhone as like your computer, uh, you want to plug stuff into it. Like you can't plug a microphone into an iPhone without a cable. Have you heard about the iPad Pro? Yeah. There's a USB-C port. That should be your laptop now, and that's who you are. Okay. Look, you're right. I just don't think there's like a great lightning ecosystem out there that anybody gives a shit about. Okay. I mean, I think that there is for music. I think there is they, they there there are there are a handful of shits given for music accessories that use lightning. Yeah, fair. But but those I mean, should be USB C. But then there's there gonna be no port at all. What if the iPhone Pro has USB C and then the i this is the comp the great compromise is the iPhone Pro gets USB C but the iPhone loses all ports. Ooh. Would you make that trade to have a world where the iPhone Pro has USB-C? Ooh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'd make that trade. But nobody would buy the iPhone without a cable, without a port. I can't, they would just ship a cord with USB-A at one end, <laughs> almost certainly, and then yeah. like a little circle magnet thing a little puck. on the other end. I think that I think that little circle would be bigger than you, you want it to be. Like it needs to be like like not quite coaster size, but it needs to be fairly large to get any kind of like wattage through it. Yeah, and it's just going to keep you and your loved ones warm. It's going <laughs> to really like it. We promise you. Uh that's a rumor. I would say it's 50-50 shot. Yeah. I just wanted to make the case cuz it's fun to make the case. I'm just trying not to get prematurely mad in case it's not true. In other iOS port news, huh? Wow. Do you like my uh, my local news segue? Uh-huh. Lightroom after mm-hmm. all of this time. Yep. Can now directly import a photo on the iPad. 2019, baby. It took just 45 years of people wondering what the hell was going on. Uh, one, I would say, uh, spicy review video from us. One entire change to philosophy about the iPad from Apple. And yep. then two more years from Adobe. Yeah. But they got there, and you can now do it. I've done it. 
I've imported a JPEG, my friends. How'd it feel? It was, it was everything. It's also the most intensely revealing thing about how frustrating it has been to use an iPad this entire time. Yeah. Because you do it, and you're like, why is this a news cycle? <laughs> this is just how it should have worked the whole time. <laughs> and then my last uh, favorite one, there's a Swiss TV company out there. Yes. Mm-hmm. That instead of cable boxes, ships Apple TVs, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Is what they should do. Um, but so many people were confused by the Apple TV remote that they worked with Apple to make their own remote with a D-pad that yeah. is big and has like buttons mm-hmm. and a power button. A power button, vol- yep. volume, the whole thing. Uh, I want one real bad. I want one real bad. You, you need to start a daily newsletter. Subscribe to <laughs> commandlinetheverge.com slash newsletters because a reader has replied to me and said, I'm going to Switzerland and I'm going to go to one of these uh, cable stores from the uh, Swiss cable company and uh, see if I can buy the remote. And if I can, do you want me to buy you one? And I said, yes, I will pay triple because yeah. I want one so bad. Um, every attempt to reinvent the remote control involves a retreat to adding a power button and a D-pad. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you make. Doesn't matter if you pay Jennifer Aniston to make TV shows for you. Amazon included the power button, but they didn't include, I think, volume buttons for a while, and so they had to retreat and like put those back on. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, I think the the big the big thing for most of those companies, Roku didn't have power volume for a long time, and then they sort of like added them on the side of the remote to confuse people the most. Is all of these boxes used to be like the third box? And so I think there was an assumption that you would end up with a universal remote or something else along the way, or you just like have five remotes because you needed five remotes because you had a cable box remote and that was doing volume power for you. Now they're the primary box, and I, I don't think they've contended with that. And then reinventing navigation. Like I have the, an LG OLED TV that does like the wavy mouse, which is fun to a point. Yeah. Do you actually use the wavy mouse? I try every time. Really? Every time. It's been like two years you've had this thing. Yeah. And you pick it up and you're like, there's that mouse cursor. And you're like, remember that CES where they told us about Beanbird, their helpful setup assistant that people would come to love? Yeah. Uh They they don't talk about Beanbird so much anymore. (laughs) Uh, But it's like there and it works for some things and for other Mm -hmm. things. And it's just like, just the D-pad's fine. My Sony TV has a very slow D-pad situation. You're like, this is, you know what? This is what I deserve. I run Android yeah. on this TV, and this is who I am. <laughs> Do you want to talk about this Rewound app? Wrap up this Apple situation. Uh, so there's a Rewound app that is it it accesses your music library, and it the interface just looks like an old school iPod. But what's fascinating is. When you go to install it from the App Store, it asks you what kind of interface do you want. And it has, like, a really boring button interface, which is, you know, completely legal. And, like, but if you want, you could, like, go on Twitter and search. And then if somebody happens to have used this hashtag, you'll be able to download a PNG from Twitter and then use that as the skin on this music player. Like, we're shipping Winamp in 2003. And if you do that, then you can make it look and act just like an iPod. And <laughs> it is deeply fascinating to me that Apple let this thing, which is clearly designed, 100% designed to make you, give you a thing that feels like Apple's interface that it still obviously has like design patents on or something. Um, and they just, they let it on the App Store because it has this one extra step of you got to go like download it, download the skin from the internet. Yeah. I think it's probably because, like, Phil Schiller himself wanted it. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, you got two things. One, it, it's nostalgic. It mm-hmm. still streams Apple Music. There's still 
pay an artist, you know, 0.04 cents a stream or whatever Apple Music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's like, that's fine. It's not replacing your phone. It's just another app on your phone. There's not like some iPod business for them to save. And it makes everybody feel happy. And on top of it, uh, extremely clever way around the rules. Again, yeah. in Apple's DNA, I mean, this is like the company that started out making blue boxes together. So they're probably like a little, we love a little hacker spirit. You, no, they don't. <laughs> no, they Wait. make a credit card with Goldman Sachs now. They fully yeah, do not on. love hacker spirit do anymore. Do you give Apple credit for allowing someone to cleverly circumvent their rules and not cracking down on them? Or do you just be mad at Apple that is this difficult to get This is there? where we are with the platforms in our lives, with the monopolies that control America. We give them credit when they're like, We've looked the other way to do this very obvious thing that most people should be able to do. Having used the Rewound app for a day or so, uh, I will say two things. One, I don't think the physics on the scroll wheel are exactly right yet. It's like a little bit too slow when you try and go fast. Two, when you're on a long list or of, uh, like, of songs or artists, uh, the scroll wheel is still far superior to uh, swipe scrolling. Yeah. Wow. If you want to get down to the bottom of something big and long, uh, you're like the the wheel is way faster and more satisfying. So the, a scroll wheel is like like a quarter turn or a half turn, and you're at full speed. Where where you've got kind of like a a couple of up swipes to get to full speed on on a traditional UI. But then you gotta you gotta keep doing it, and so it's like it just feels swipe uh, swipe. Swipe. Yeah. Swipe. Whereas with scroll, you just go, 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 go. Now, there's like, there's obviously benefits to the touchscreen. I don't need to talk about this, but like, you know, you get like letters, you get things to <laughs> pop up, know. you get like little scroll bars. <laughs> like, you can get a scroll bar that you can grab and drag to go fast. There's other ways to do it. Mm. But um, man, they nailed the scroll wheel back in the day, and I miss it. Yeah. Here, need I remind you that when Apple introduced the Apple Watch, they were like, we've invented several ways to manipulate a computer in our time. And they're like, the mouse and keyboard. They were like the touch screen, multi-touch. And then they were like the scroll wheel. And they put them on the screen and Tim Cook gazed upon them. And everyone was like, yep, those are the three things you invented. They were awesome. And then he was like the digital crown. Then the industry continues to be silent and even attempting to clone the digital crown. Yeah. That's how you know they didn't get it. When literally no one, there's not even like one bad Chinese smartwatch clone of the Apple Watch that like really tries to have a digital crown. Uh, there are some Wear OS devices that have like a, a crown that like do, does some scrolling. They just they, they they do feel like garbage. Like the digital crown does feel better, but I still prefer Samsung's bezel. So we're gonna break for an ad, and then we're come back and have thirty minutes of digital crown apologies from Dieter. Yeah, Pound. it's gonna great. be great. Here we go. No, we're gonna talk about the gadgets in a second. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right. So I was before we started the show, I was explaining to Paul how we ranked 100 gadgets for the decade. And by the way, all credit goes to Jake Kastronakis, who was the editor of this project. He wrangled our entire staff to write little 200-word stories about gadgets. And we like should, more importantly, he wrangled our feelings about this because like we, there's so many of them. <laughs> it was a lot. So here's how we, I'm, I'm going to be totally transparent with you. Here's how we ranked the gadgets. We yelled at each other for five hours on one day, and then we yelled at each other with software for three hours the next day. This is 100% true. So mm-hmm. we, we had the list. The list, the original list was far longer than 100. I think we were at like 135 or something. We, we pulled out a bunch of them that were like obviously not important. But we needed a big list. Then we kind of like subjectively did the top 10, I would say. Yeah. We kind of knew like y- there has to be an iPhone in the top 10. We think the Tesla Model S belongs in the top 10. So we, we kind of know it belongs here. Then for the rest, we it was me, Dieter, Dan, and Jake. We put all the gadgets in a list, and then we all quietly gave them scores from what, zero to nine, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, we, and then we summed the four, and that tiered them all into a thing. And yep. then Dieter, I still don't believe that it was this simple. He somehow took the CSV out of that spreadsheet and put it into Asana. I didn't even need the CSV. I just copied and pasted into Asana. You should make it sound more complicated. You should be like, okay. I waved right. an incantation. And <laughs> the software did its magic. And then, and this is what Asana is truly not designed to do, it is have four people on four different computers move cards around. It, yeah. like Asana did not like this. Yeah. So then we had tiers of each 10, and then we like argued about the cards. It, it took a long time. Let's talk about the most controversial decision we made. Well, so before you even get there, I do want to point out that uh, there was a big debate. Are these the best of the decade? Are these the most important? What are they? And we intentionally call it just gadgets of the decade because it's a little bit of a mix of those two things. But to me, the answer to what is this list, it's like it's the list of like definitional gadgets. If you want to have a whole picture of what the hell happened in gadget world in the 2010s, these are the ones you need to know. These are the ones that were either the most influential or just like the biggest moments. Like they define what gadgets were in the past 10 years. Yeah. And yeah. So it's a little fuzzy, but fuzzy for a reason. They're the ones we think about. Like here's, yeah. you know, 100 years from now, someone's like, give me a list of 100 gadgets. <laughs> this, it's this list. Yeah. Keep that in mind, future generations, <laughs> when you listen to this podcast. Pull over in your space mobile. That was a joke about future. I got it. Thank you, Dieter. I appreciate you. Paul has remained (laughs) very silent. Uh, It's a quiet chuckle. Okay. So it was obvious we're going to put the iPhone at the top spot. It was obvious to me that it should be the 4. We didn't put the 5 there, even though the 5 had LTE, but the 4 had all the features and the legal controversy associated with it and antenna gate and like a Steve Jobs moment. So it's got to be the 4. Well, it it, it was the glass sandwich. That was the thing that sold me on it. On this topic, I I, I agree with as far as a uh, a pivotal moment for phone design. 
But best iPhone is the five, right? Mm-mm. The four is, I think, more beautiful than the five. We could do this All for right. like five. Minutes. All right. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll just put it out there. I think the five is more beautiful than the four. Yes. But... This was the argument that we had, right? Is it the four or the five in this spot? Whatever. I, the four and its associated controversies and the fact that it was like a Steve Jobs reveal and a Steve Jobs controversy. Yeah. That sure. you got to You got to give it the top spot. Yep. Um, then I think the rest are pretty defensible. And then the one... If you look, it is very obvious the iPod is not. It is very obvious the iPad is not in the top ten. It is at number eleven, and it's specifically yep. the iPad Air. Yeah, not the first gen iPad. A lot of fights about this, actually. I think Dieter just had a crisis of conscience before he came on the air, and he was like, "We should have put it higher." I absolutely think that we were correct to put the Air, specifically the Air at eleven. I think we could have put the original iPad way higher. I'm, I'm, I remain fine where it is, but I'm very confident that the error at 11 is correct. Here, here are my two – here's my argument. Oh, this whole thing is about making cases for gadgets to be in like, completely arbitrary places in the list. If there's a more yeah. verge activity, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, the iPad is, is important conceptually. Things like iPads are everywhere. Right. Right, but we didn't want to. We didn't want to put concepts on this list. Mostly, yeah. There are some. There are some concepts on the list, but they're more the exception than the rule. But the iPad as a product, if you just look at what is the most influential iPad, what is the one that iPads still look like the most? It's the iPad Air, right? It's that one. It's the the three hundred twenty nine base model iPad that they sell the most of is still basically the iPad Air. Like sometimes it gets thinner, sometimes it gets thicker. Sometimes the screen is laminated, sometimes it's not. Like it's still the iPad Air. Like the basic thing of the iPad is still the iPad Air. So that's the one that set the course for the iPad this decade. The iPad Pro before this last generation was like an iPad Air with a smart connector and a flippy case. Like it, that's the thing that made the iPad. Did the iPad have the impact, cultural impact of AirPods? I would, like, absolutely say no. Like, the iPad is not a meme in that way. Like, it's just outside the top ten is my argument. It's, like, it's so close to knocking on the door, but, like, it didn't do it. It it never did the thing that Apple said it was going to do. For ten years, they've been saying, this is the future of computing. And for ten years, people are like, this is pretty good for my email, but I can't import a JPEG. Right, and so like they're na- like now maybe. It'll Whereas happen. with my AirPods, I get all sorts of things done. No, with but AirPods are like everywhere. Like they sure, they sure. like exploded into the cultural consciousness. Mm. I was like in twenty forty seven. What will matter more? What will when we look back upon this era? I think the iPad we the iPad deserves to be ranked higher than AirPods, and I think that. It may be that I'm wrong and AirPods will continue to be as culturally important in five years as they are today. I think AirPods are more culturally important today in this moment than than the iPad. Uh, but I don't think that they will have the staying power in terms of their cultural importance that the iPad will have. So they, they got a big spike right now. But I think that's gonna it's going to settle down, whereas right. the iPad is a slow and steady growth. On what timeline do you gauge importance? And I would say, in for a list of the decade, it's just the decade. By the way, if you'd like, if you'd like a little window into what this was like <laughs> for five hours, Neil is also the editor in chief, and I'm just the executive editor. And so, <laughs> no, we made cases. There were okay. there are only That's the fair. only That's one. Uh, and actually, I lost my biggest fight. Yeah, like hardcore renegade lost my biggest fight. Uh, there are plenty. There, I think the only one that I insisted that we do it the way we do it was Shitbox Dell Chromebook. 
<laughs> that was my idea. It was your idea, but I insisted that that be the title. I, that was yeah. the only. I think that was the only. I, I didn't want to call it a shit box, but you went for it. So I, and it's the one that's like the most popular entry in the list. Uh, Paul, okay, so Paul, you've heard the two cases. Yeah. What do you think? I have a, I have a hard time ever saying like here's my definitive opinion about it. Oh wait, wait. Can I explain one more thing? The Pixel Two is higher than it, right? At ten, and the reason why is because the entire computational photography moment that redefined how we think about phones taking photos happened with that phone. Also, it was mm. like it was the Google phone for me. Like it was it was the one where Google was like, we're in the game. They didn't obviously succeed at being in the game, but like, but I think that the technology in that has longer repercussions, right? So the argument is like, I, I wanted to keep it just out, right? Based on Apple's promises versus delivery. Mm. And I, the Pixel 2 had this core technology that like literally over the past three or four years has like changed how we think about photos. So that that's the argument there. Oh, in the Surface, sorry. In the, I'm just thinking about all the <laughs> tweets that came at me and it's all in my brain. Uh, and why is the Surface Pro 3 is high? Two reasons. One, the Surface line effectively rescued Windows. Yep. That's like a pretty huge accomplishment. And two, more things, including the iPad, look like the Surface Pro 3 than look like the iPad. Mm. Right, it's yeah. it, it's insistence on that form factor and the and the flippiness and the keyboard and, and the stuff like the iPad became more like the Surface Pro three than the Surface Pro three became like the iPad. Yep, that's true. That's mostly because Microsoft doesn't know how to like make software. Yeah, there's like reasons for everything. <laughs> yeah. So, so I wasn't in this whole whole conversation. So when I saw a list of the best gadgets or the gadgets of the decade, the thing that can popped into my mind is like what felt the most futuristic, and what did I not really expect in 2009? Okay. And I remember. I, I don't know. I might be completely contradicting myself of what I said back in the day, but I remember just not being sure what an iPad was good for. And that has been true for most of this decade, but this literally this year, and this might be recency bias, but like in the past couple of months, I've gotten very into iPad music. Um, and like the way I've used the iPad most of uh, the time I've had iPads is with physical keyboards. I even with my first iPad, I got that dock that you could like, it was a keyboard with uh, the 30 pin connector or whatever. And you dock your iPad into it. It was awful. Yeah. I um, had that. But this is this past couple of months is the first time I've started. I, I hold my iPad in one hand, um, no case on it, no keyboard on it. I walk around and I can create music, and the, and it has, and also it's really weird to me because it's it's mostly based on all of these, all of this software that's really skeuomorphic, like all these, uh, like modeled synthesizers, like they're skeuomorphic aesthetically and internally. It was the, one of the best technology feelings that I've had this decade. It just felt so good and so cool and so futuristic. And I did. I did. I didn't see it coming. I, I don't know that it's had. Yeah, as far as impact, like it's I, it maybe hasn't had nearly as strong of an impact. Obviously, as something like the iPhone four, but it's something that felt like the most wow gadget of the decade. It's my whatever I. I don't know which iPad it is. It's the, the, iPod, <laughs> the concept of the iPad. The iPad Pro that's. 64-bit and fast enough to run, like, seven synthesizers on a bunch of effects at the same so time. So I think what you're describing there, uh, and I think the reason 
again, that like you kick it to 11 and not 10, is I can tell you how a bunch of consumer behaviors changed around the phone. In fact, that is mostly what we talk about on this show is like consumer behaviors in the phone and how they interact. Like everything in the world changed around the phone. I can tell you how uh, computational photography and HDR systems changed how people take photos. I just tell you, like it did. We talk about that a lot too. Um, I can, for most of the items that are list, I can tell you how the how people's conception of a car changed around the Tesla Model S, specifically the Model S, not the Model Three, right? Like the Model S came out as a phenomenon; it was a status symbol, it was electric. The world sort of moved itself around it. I kind of cannot tell you that about the iPad. I can I can tell you a lot of things that happened, right? But like this, like universal change in behavior around the iPad. Is like it's still not quite there. It's like it's always been just out of reach. And I think I think it makes the iPad a little more Tesla than some of those other things because it, in a sense, when the iPad works really well, it's like oh, this is where the puck is going. You know, yeah. it feels. And that's what you're describing with music. Yeah, right? like, exactly. That's. But I I recognize that this is a very niche thing and hard. I, like it makes me wish. Like why isn't text editing more like? iPad synthesis, you know? <laughs> well, I don't have audio unit plugins for text or something. All right. Uh, so we don't argue at every single spot uh, and recapitulate our entire 10 hours of argument. Uh, everybody pick one thing from the list that they like have a, have a special feeling for. Uh, so I'll go first. Uh, number 20, I think this is the exact right spot for it, the jewel. I think, uh, in terms of cultural influence, in terms of a technology product that literally is like a drug delivery vehicle, um, like phones might like, you know, hack our brains and the phone addiction is like the science isn't out or whatever, but like the, the science on nicotine addiction is very clear <laughs> and we made a gadget that delivers it and it completely changed the way that a whole lot of people, uh, take in nicotine and it became just, especially in this moment right now, the rise of teen vaping and like the percent of high school seniors who have tried to vape in the last month is just shooting up. It's doubling year over year. Uh, the jewel is at least a number 20 in terms of influence uh, of gadgets this decade. Just go, just going off of TikTok alone, I would say I've seen as many jokes and memes about jewels as I have about AirPods. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. AirPods also deliver nicotine directly into your brain. It's a little known <laughs> fact, and I didn't want to say it until now. That's true. Uh, but it's out. No, that's pure misinformation. Please don't repeat that. Please do not tell your parents that information. They will definitely believe you. Well, so I have two. Can I have two? Fine. Well, it's one, mine got knocked off. Oh, okay, yeah. So they're the same one. So at 91, yeah. uh, Nat Garen put the Dyson Supersonic in, yep. and she rogue deleted mine, which is the Chromebook Pixel. Yeah, which so I, everyone agreed with. <laughs> Just like flatly everyone agreed with. So I think she was correct in the end. The Dyson Supersonic is a $400 hairdryer. It itself was a meme. Friend of the Verge, Helen Rosner, who writes about food at The New Yorker, we wrote about this. But she tweeted during like a snowstorm that she was drying the skin of a chicken with a Dyson Supersonic and became this like insane meme where people thought she was cooking the chicken with a hairdryer and then we were, whatever. But like it's a hairdryer that was a meme. It's also like re-engineered this product. It created this ripple effect. So Nat was correct. I made her make the case to me. Like I pushed her to make a very strong case. She made a very strong case. Fine. Yeah. She, everyone won. The Chromebook Pixel yeah. <laughs> is still one of my favorite products of this decade. It was a th it. I bought one for my mother. It is a thousand dollar computer that just runs Chrome. Yep. If there is a more, and it's beautiful and it's well engineered and it looks cool as hell. 
It has a beautiful screen. It has touch screen. The whole thing. If there was a moment when, like, maybe the whole internet was going to go different, it was when Google made a $1,000 computer that just ran, ran Chrome. When they're like, you don't need a, a laptop that can do other things. Yeah. You need a computer that's as powerful. Like, the one I bought my mom has an i7 in it. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Um, but you need a computer that's as powerful as any Windows or Mac laptop, as well-engineered. It costs $1,000, and all it can do is run this web browser. Like, that was just a, it was like an inflection point in the entire industry. that They thought that that would work. Mm-hmm. It did not work, <laughs> no. just to be very clear. But they thought desktop computing will persist such that people will and, and like succeed, such that people will buy a $1,000 computer that just runs Chrome. I got to tell you, I, I kind of wish it had worked. Maybe that's why I'm so <laughs> fond of it. Um, but that, to me, is like a, a moment that I, I could not – I'm still not making a good enough case for it. It yeah. was the one I wanted on the list. I couldn't quite get it. But it's the thing I think about every day that we talk about whether or not social media apps with algorithmically determined feeds will just sort of destroy the web and everything we hold dear. Uh huh. There was a time when just like a $1,000 computer that just ran a web browser was a good idea. That's my story I mean, of the 2010s. We'll see okay. what happens in the 2020s. Remember, Google used to do like these really proprietary wild plugins to support some of its services, and then it sort of slowly killed them off and then completely deprecated that. Was that was that pre or post Chromebook Pixel? Uh, pre, I think. Yeah. I, they all swirling around, but yeah. They stopped doing that. Um, the other one I just want to point out, uh, we put in the list of confused people, was the Toyota Camry. Here's why. This was the decade where you could push a button on your phone and a Toyota Camry would appear. Yeah. That's remarkable. Like, if you live in New York City, you can summon a Toyota Camry anytime you want. That was not oh, possible. Oh, you mean before. like Uber and Lyft? Uber and Lyft. And it, it became, it's the commodity engine of ride sharing. I get it. And it is, like, Uber and, and Toyota have a, a partnership. And like I said, there's reasons for it. Hmm. But it is it is the the hardware instantiation of Uber. Obviously, there's drivers. Like, let's not forget them. But it is such a remarkable People did not have a relationship with a model of car in that way before. That's why it's on the list. Mm. What's your favorite, Paul? I I really uh, not my favorite gadget, but my just thing on this list. The the Connect has so much meaning for me. Ah, uh, yeah. Especially because it was one of my my biggest most wrongs ever, where I doubted the PS4 because it wouldn't have bundled motion controls, and thought that because Microsoft was betting on guaranteed connect because obviously you don't get motion controls unless every console ships with them. Right. Right. Um, I thought micro, I, I just, I thought it was the future. So with the Xbox one, that the connect would being bundled, it would be a big deal. And because it was so much higher fidelity than the Xbox 360 version. And it was just, and it's still like, I, I have an Oculus and I hardly use it because it's just standing up and moving your arms is too much work when you're playing a video game. <laughs> and I wish that wasn't true. Um, I'm reading like a novel where this guy's in an MMO, but he, he, the VR capsule, you just lay down. Like that's what it mm-hmm. should be. And so I love motion controls conceptually so much. I wrote a whole essay how, you know, like this idea of capturing a higher amount of bandwidth from the user instead of, you know, if you think a, a, a mouse is just a click and, you know, movement on X, Y plane, you know, but 
analog input of, of your whole body could be so much more interesting, but it wasn't. Well, the, the Kinect also was, uh, you know, it was the fastest selling something, something ever when it first came out. And it, it, it had such a trajectory and you know, doctors were using it and telemedicine and all this stuff was happening. And it was like, wow, they, they made a new thing. This is going to be a part of our computing lives. And like this first thing is really, really interesting. And clearly this is just going to keep on getting bigger and more important over time. And then like three years in, just rah, the end. Yeah. And it, okay. One, it did change robotics forever. Uh, okay. This sensor technology and co you know, making it a commodity did change robotics. Two, um, Microsoft did a terrible job of coming up with games for it, and and they didn't ever make a good Wii Sports. And uh, and three, the thing I already said about standing up and moving around. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the, the tech in the first Connect is now Face ID, right? Partially, yeah. So it, it it got there, but it's like a classic example of like. Something is so big at one point in time that you just assume that it will, it will persist. always be, yeah. I just searched for this. This is 2009, so it doesn't count, but um, there's a New York Times review of Beatles Rock Band. Oh, yes. Like the plastic rock band games. And it's so long, and it's like such a deep dive in how they make rock band. And it ends, like they interview McCartney and Ringo Starr, and it ends with, in 10 years' time, you'll be standing there, and you will be Paul McCartney. You'll be a holographic case, and it will encase you, and you will be Paul McCartney. <laughs> it's like, no, that didn't happen at all. <laughs> like, Beatles Rock Band did not portend that future at all. Like, I'm standing here in 2019, and I can tell you that no one is Paul McCartney except for actual Paul McCartney. <laughs> anyway. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back. We got to talk about this Twitter, this Twitter protocol thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Paul Miller, every week. That's right. Our nation held together mm -hmm. by the tenuous thread called Web Often. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so I discovered. Anything, if anything holds people together, it's, it's Web Often. <laughs> web Often, which web is often. A sh like a shortened way to say web authentication, yeah. um, which is a new, I mean, 2018, but I'm just finding out about this like new standard for web authentication with uses public key cryptography. The the my news peg for this is um iOS 13.3 is gonna support security keys. Yeah, it's there, it's out, but Google doesn't support Safari yet. 
for Google uh, two factor, and so a bu- and like a bunch of Safari stuff, it just doesn't work. So like you could use it with like some apps, but it's pointless to me now. Anyway, continue. There's so much to learn about WebAuth. And like uh, the idea would be that you could log into something and it would say, okay, just insert your security key and you insert it. Or, you know, use your fingerprint or use Windows Hello or, or whatever. You can log into things with just the security code or just the security key or just your fingerprint or just your face mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and the, what's cool about WebAuth is that it portends end of the password so anyway right. i think people should check it out i only just heard about it it's really exciting it doesn't just it, it, it it's obviously designed with security keys in mind but it also like i logged into something using my phone and my fingerprint the other day and yeah. it was pretty it was pretty magical that they don't have my email address i didn't have to remember a password and I feel like that's the wave of the future. It's very exciting. Well, and like all web standards, everyone's going to agree on it, implement it really quickly, and everything will support it right away. And exactly. so it's just around the corner. There right? you go. There yeah. you go. All right. Dieter Bone. In a surprise tweet storm, Jack Dorsey announced that he was forming an elite team called Blue Sky. <laughs> five people. <laughs> five people to create a protocol upon which Twitter could be a mere client. Yes. I would say the reason I started this by saying Dieter Bone uh-huh. is because the web people got very mad. Oh, my God. And when so I mad. need to understand why the web people are mad, I turn to you, my friend, Dieter Bone. So I cannot speak for all web people. <laughs> I did not, <laughs> did not invent <laughs> the web or the people that uh, persist on it. So if you're not familiar, like, basically, Dorsey's whole thing is like, look, like, there's SMTP for email. There's HTTP for web pages. Like, there should be, like, a, a standard. And the web people got mad because, one, of course there's a standard. There's, like, five. What about Mastodon? What about web uh, pub sub hub 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 And, like, the, all these other things that are out there. So how dare you just ignore all of the work that we've been doing? You're just trying to create a thing that Twitter is secretly going to control anyway. And that's fair anger to have, but also... This thing is so far from being a thing that it's like it's I'm not saying don't prejudge it, but I'm saying don't prejudge it. I'm saying like, find out what they're due before anything happens. Right. So that's one. Uh, I think some of that anger is premature. But I, and, and I, why is everybody actually angry? And I think it's because we never got closure from when Twitter first started screwing everything up. When Dick Costolo, the former CEO, came over from Google, Casey's made this point a couple of times, he's like, well, we got to make money. I make money off ads. That's why you hired me. And the way you make money on ads on a social network is you lock everything down so everyone has to come to your app and then you put ads on it. So that's what he did. Um, and it just – it killed – they killed off – the, um, you know, the third-party APIs and the, you know, freedom to, like, download a whole bunch of data really easily and all the third-party clients started to wither. Uh, but he didn't have the courage to just, like, kill it hard. Uh, it was like, we're going to shut it down in six months and then maybe we won't. And then, well, no, we kind of are. And then, well, maybe some people didn't. Like, it was just this, like, slow bleeding out. If we had had the moment where they just cut everybody off, we would all have been angry. We might have all gone to use something else. We would have had this this furious moment. Instead, we just had this like slow petering out of anger and we just continued to use Twitter because what the hell else are we going to do? And him saying, you know what? That was all a mistake. We're going to try, try again and do it the way that you know, all really wanted us to in the first place. It just reopens all of those wounds in a way that like 
brings anger. And Dorsey's only gesture to this in the tweet storm was, quote, for a variety of reasons, all reasonable at the time, we took a different path. And it's like, yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) So let me make the argument for shutting, for closing down the API and for doing it much harder. Because at the time, it was correct. Like, I just want to say that flat out. It sucked. And I really liked my third-party Twitter clients. uh, And it was like a design playground and like whatever. The reason it was a design playground is because people could try new ways of interactions and new ways of displaying content yep. in a social network, which was like the hot, cool thing, yep. and they would plug and, into Twitter, which is where everybody already was. They didn't have to architect a social network, right? Right. And, and they so also like, didn't have to like deal with you know Nazis and failure to like handle right. the Nazis. All of that was Twitter's problem. So Twitter had the cost of all the people... They had to keep their servers up, which they were not great at doing for a long yeah. time there. Yeah. They, we knew about the Nazis, but they weren't like the th- only thing people talked about in terms of content moderation. Mm-hmm. We had not yet descended into total political chaos on Twitter. It was just like the place where all the, the cool kids were, and you can build like a front end to the cool kids, right? Yeah. Okay, that was neat. Twitter itself was a horrible business at that point in time. Yeah. They, they didn't have a business. It was mm-hmm. not reasonable to expect that they would become like – the monopoly provider of the president's deranged tweets, which is what they currently are. It was yeah. reasonable to expect that they would have competition, that they would fail, that they that other social networks would just eat them. Everyone thought Facebook uh-huh. would eat them. I'm just making the case. Google was maybe going to buy them for a minute, or we thought they would. Disney almost bought them. Like it was. Who yeah. knew what was going to happen to Twitter? The business model it, for most of these networks now is still introducing artificial scarcity through algorithmic display. Right. And that is a long way of saying they mix up all the tweets and stick some ads in the middle. Right. That's like mostly what how Twitter makes money. It's how Instagram makes money. It's how Facebook makes money. They take all the content in. They promise you, the user, they will filter it for you and only show you the best, most relevant stuff. And in the middle, you're going to see the ads that are hyper targeted to your particular interest, sometimes so well that you believe that they're listening to you. That's the business model of social networks right now. Okay. Well, so they did it. They make a little bit of money. They don't make a lot of money. Still not a great business. So if you're Jack Dorsey and you're the CEO, you spend half your time at Square. More than half. You're going to move to Africa sometime this year. And you're like looking at your like sort of medium good public business. Why wouldn't you be like, I'm not going to be Facebook. I'm not going to be Instagram. I'm not going to be YouTube where they've monetized artificial scarcity in this way. Why wouldn't right. you just like swerve the other direction and say, I don't have a business that can support an army of content moderators in right. every country in the world. I don't yeah. have a business that can reasonably deal with the president of the United States should be banned under our policy, but we had to create yep. this other policy. Like, I don't have a business that can support new kinds of formats the way that Instagram could just roll out stories. Yep. Like, it's just people tweeting. That's still the thing that it is. And they're going to yeah. roll out, and they rolled out, like, higher-res images yesterday in life. Like, they can sort of, like, add to it. But the main mm-hmm. thing is still the main thing, and it will always be the main thing. Why wouldn't you just go the other way? So this is – this is uh, I should have just put this on the website, but it, it was just in the newsletter. Um, I think that Jack Dorsey's plan is sincere, but it's not serious. I, like, I believe him that he's trying to do this thing that, like, actually makes sense conceptually. Like, yeah, we the way we make money is off of uh, running an algorithm and putting ads in it. We don't actually need to be the person that pulls in all the data. Uh, so we're just going to, like, do it. And then once we do it, we can, like, actually push even harder on moderation because there will be other people that can, like, you know, 
make the their whatevers. All of it like makes sense conceptually, but you know, why didn't you wait until you had like hired one of these five people? And the the sincerity of it is actually part of the problem because their answer to that would be, well, you know, we don't want to prejudge and we want every we want the widest possible blah 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 blah. It's like or, or you just really enjoy being Jack Dorsey, public intellectual, who has deep thoughts about how the internet works. That's that's what he's really doing here. <laughs> Along those lines, Jack Dorsey, not I don't know, less than six months ago, made a very similar announcement saying we're going to start a thing called Square Crypto. It's going to be separate from Square. We're going to hire open source developers to work on Bitcoin to make Bitcoin better. They don't have any. They're not beholden to Square's bottom line. And he was universally among the Bitcoin community, loved for it. So maybe he just thought he'd have another like, oh, good one, Je-, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but I, 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 I like that, like that, I forget, serious, not. Sincere, not serious. Sincere, not serious. I think is a good, I just, it sounds like something that's totally not going to work. I'm sure he will find a few really great people. I can imagine that, I do want to make it clear because I feel like I saw it in his thread and the Blue Sky put it on their Twitter right away. They they are open to looking at existing open source solutions. The obvious yes. one is is ActivityPub, which by the way, Mastodon didn't start with Mac ActivityPub. It, it added that in later. So I, I could I could see them adopting something that exists, but it is very hard to imagine. Like, is there any example of somebody making a very successful closed platform and then making it an open protocol? Like, I like I'm sure that this has happened. I've just nothing is coming to mind. Apple promised to do it with Face uh, FaceTime and iMessage, and they never did it. But there was like a patent issue there. They never promised to do it with iMessage, right? No, no, it was just FaceTime. Oh, just and FaceTime. There was, some, like, there was some weird patent issue that made them re-architect it. I'm sure listeners know. Tell us if there's ever been a super successful proprietary thing that turned into a public protocol. Like, actually, let us know because I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I, I mean, I was saying this on the show a while ago. Like, I like open source decentralized protocols, and I really am trying to get myself out of, or slowly wean myself off of my dependency on centralized platforms because they're they're really capricious, and they also can like they're kind of like becoming like the craft macaroni and cheese version of everything like like the really cool if you want to hear weird things or talk to your friends like you're on discord or you're on telegram you know you're in smaller groups or on weirder platforms and then but because like places like youtube you know there's all this uncertainty like ah like i review toys so now I'm apparently i'm a children's channel i'll be fine you know the a lot of the centralized platforms create a lot of uncertainty about your permanence and your your privileges on that platform so the youtube thing i don't love defending youtube <laughs> it's not my favorite thing to do but that specific thing that you're talking about the uncertainty is created because youtube has chosen to hide the responsibility from the people, right? So you sign up for YouTube and you expect like, oh, I'm on this platform, it's paying me money, everything must be on the up and up because it's a big company, right? And so YouTube just like shirked its responsibility. Because if you are making stuff for kids on the internet, you do have a set of responsibilities, right? And like YouTube either needs to police those responsibilities or it needs to get out of the way and let you feel the consequences of your responsibility and be accountable for them. And they sort of like just put themselves in the middle 
and they like took some of the responsibility or not all the responsibility and they enforced some of the rules and they changed a bunch of rules this week and like that is the problem with centralization. It's not that they it's that the big platforms the bigger they get to be fully in control, they would have to do a lot more than they're doing. Or they just need to get completely out of the way and let you, provider of children's videos, be responsible for that thing. Well, that's why I said they end up like a craft macaroni and cheese. They 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 need at scale, they need to be able to do the exact same thing for everybody. And so it, it, it inevitably they have to shave off the rough edges and the the weird the weird edge cases. Yeah, I mean I guess I buy it. I just think that the responsibilities of these platforms let me put it this way. Like Zuckerberg goes in front of Congress or he makes his freedom of speech argument, and his thing is like we have to be this big to secure the election. We have to be this big so the United States can compete with China. And his argument is scale, like pure scale. Like Facebook should get bigger is basically what he's saying. It should be bigger and bigger and bigger and we will solve the problem and we will have enough content moderators and we will have enough um, engineers on the Instagram team to make cool new experiences and we will have enough AI research and Libra teams to compete with all of China. That's his argument. It's like very explicitly his argument. I think right, Jack I, is like, I can't get that big. Like, yeah, I don't even want to be that big. It's too well, hard. Like an ideal Twitter, you know, where people are making bespoke tools for using it, you know, like instead, like a lot of people use block lists on Twitter, uh, but you know, you could have a, an algorithm. That's just, you could have your own algorithm that you pick that is designed to like help your mood, you know, like, did you feel good at the end of today? Yes or no? Okay, well, we'll tweak some things, you know? Like, I, I, that's how I've started using social media more of just, like, I'll unfollow things if I just, you know, if I'm not feeling good. And so, like, the personalized tools would, I think, ha have a way better shot of than Facebook becoming the largest thing in the world, you know, solving the problems of social media. So here's the problem for Twitter becoming the end state. If all goes well, the Blue Sky team... They figure it out. The Twitter protocol ends up on the blockchain and whatever. It all works. Seems unlikely, but let's say it all works. Isn't Twitter's product just the best Twitter client? Yeah. At the end of the, at the end of all that, aren't they just making the best Twitter client that's the best monetized thing? Mm -hmm. Like, there's an existential threat buried inside of this plan that yeah. Jack is not like gesturing at. Like, there's a reason Gmail the service in Gmail, the client get tighter and tighter and tighter. And there's weird Gmail features that are only Gmail features because that keeps people using Gmail. Mm -hmm. But like you can, no one else has built a business of like Gmail is not a business on the scale of Twitter, right? It's like it not? just isn't that thing. Gmail doesn't make any money. Yeah, it does. Consumer Gmail makes money. It's got ads. It's got ads, but like some ads and they don't target it against your email. Right. But, like, it's not know. business. It's not like a – I mean, Google doesn't tell us. But yeah, like, that's true. So we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But, like – but Twitter is a public company, like, in the billions, right? So, but, Neil, what you're saying is, yes, an argument against the business Twitter doing this, but it's an argument for anybody in the world wanting to leave Twitter. If, yeah. If given the opportunity and the appropriate set of decentralized open source tools – you know, I think people would want to leave Twitter because the alternative is that that Twitter can't let them go and has to lock them in and has to increase the the shackles to keep them there. Even if you walk away from the lock-in argument, Twitter just like got to hit scale and hit critical mass 
you know, before any of these other competitors. And so Matt Panzerino over at TechCrunch actually had the best comment, I thought, which is, this actually seems kind of interesting. Lots of people have tried this before, but they all basically failed because Twitter was there. And so what does it mean then that Twitter itself is trying to do this thing? And we just don't know yet. Yeah. I mean, I think the one answer is that we will never know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most likely answer. answer. <laughs> okay, we've gone way over. I'm glad that we started with, like, a big, silly computer, some wild gadgets, and we, like, ended on, like, a bunch of web stuff. That's, yeah. like, the full range of nerd stuff that people, I think, come to us for. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's almost the end of the year. This is the decade we lost the headphone jack. Just hold that in your heart. If you were yeah. alive this decade... You experience, you know how people call it the Oregon Trail generation? Like you experience life before computers and after computers? Yeah. All of you experience life with headphone jacks and now without. And you're going to tell, you, tell your kids. I'm going to try to make it a meme by the end of the year. It's not going to work, but I'm going to try. Go with me on this journey. That was the Vergecast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no one, again, no one, no one responds. On Tuesday, <laughs> we're interviewing Zoe about her amazing away story. Listen, it, that was just a super fun conversation with Zoe. That story's great. Dieter's got a newsletter mm-hmm. where he writes his thoughts about the web people. Yeah. It's uh, at theverge.com slash newsletter. It's called Command Line currently, but it may not always be called Command Line. Ooh. The new year brings changes. Uh, You can tweet at us. If you know an answer to the question of a private protocol or API that turned into a a successful public one, let me know. I'm at Reckless. Paul's at Future Paul. The year's at Backlon. Java. Java. (laughs) No, that's going to the Supreme (laughs) Court, my friend. That's that's the the opposite thing happened. Um, And that's it. We'll be back next week. See you then. Rock and roll. Paul. Promo code Paul. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.